0: Let's pray. Father, what a great morning. What a great time to celebrate. God, I I pray that you would allow for your Holy Spirit to speak. I pray for each and every heart, um, each person here. All has come from such different places and such different circumstances. And some with joy, some may come with um, a heavy heart. But you are God who knows how to meet us in each and every place, and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. And I've come to a conclusion that um, people in general have a hard time really understanding and knowing the future. We're just not great predictors of that. For instance, Lee DeForest, back in 1926, the inventor of the cathode ray tube, that which would Eventually, be the part for the television. Said theoretically, television may be feasible, but I considered an, an impossibility, a development which we should waste little time dreaming about. Right. Thomas J. Watson, 1943, chairman of the board of IBM, said, "I think there is a world market for." About five computers. And he was immediately fired. No, I'm just kidding. Recording company expert in 1962 made this comment. We don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. Corey Ten Boom. To never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And what I want to talk about today is one of the reasons it is so exciting to serve this God of the universe who loves you and in mercy comes and makes himself known is because he loves to do this for people who have trouble imagining the future. He loves to take the future and to pull it into the present so that we, hard to see, hard to conceive, even some of the brightest inventive minds among us, unable to picture it, allows us to see and to picture it. And God, in his great love, steps in from time to time and intervenes in civilization To move those things forward and today is one of those days where we look at that in fact one of the problems sometimes with resurrection sunday is we have difficulty and we we sometimes get so focused on the trees that we can't see the greater forest you know we can't see the forest from the trees so to speak we get concerned about the detail that we don't see the larger story and picture and so What I wanted to do this morning was really paint a picture of the the larger story so we can understand and see how God pulls the future into the present, or in a sense, how he pulls the present forward and upward from time to time through history. And so every once in a while, it's good to step back and look at the whole story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is so uniquely different from every other religion. And on this day, Resurrection Sunday, More than any other day, the unique difference takes front and center stage. The idea of the resurrection flies in the face of every other religious teaching and sets it apart like no other. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church, makes these comments. Even a quick glance at the classic views of the major religious traditions give the lie to the old idea that all religions are basically the same. There is a world of difference between the Hindu who believes the rigorous outworking of karma means that one must return in a different body to pursue the next stage of one's identity. And the Buddhist who hopes that after death to disappear like a drop in the ocean, losing one's own identity in the great nameless and formless beyond compared to the follower of Jesus who believes in a personal bodily resurrection as evidenced in Jesus Christ, which climaxes at the end of the age with the resurrection of the dead and an unveiling of a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. There's a vast difference. The simple words in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, remains one of the most revolutionary and powerful sentences of prayer ever said. This prayer was powerfully answered at the first Easter and will be fully and finally answered at the last day when the promise of God is fulfilled and He unveils through the resurrection of all and through the new heaven and new earth all that He had ever planned. Easter was when hope in a person surprised the whole world By coming forward from the future into the present. And through the resurrection of Jesus, God pulled the future into the present. In a sense, He yanks the present forward. As Peter writes, but in keeping with the promise, God's promise, as evidenced through the resurrection, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. But I'm starting to get you lost with the trees, so let me show you the whole forest. I'd love to share with you how God steps in, intervenes, and pulls forward the present at times throughout history because He loves us so much. He wants to move us further along. Our God is so mighty to say that through every age you could say that this loving God just keeps pulling us into the future. And He can't wait to get us there. He can't wait to get us to the home He's always planned that our hearts have always longed for. He can't get us to the place Even now today, to the life that He's designed that He wants you to live, even though you can't live it so until fully one day you're with Him. What is so wonderful and remarkable about our God is He's like a God who some of you have been anticipating children to come home. You just couldn't wait for them to come, right? Or some of you who are kids who have come back from college, just couldn't wait for spring break or wait for the opportunity to get back home and more than anything, you can't wait for the dinner that you're going to have after this, right? Right? God is this God who, who has gifts that He wants to bring from the future into the present so that we can see and understand and know how good and loving and, and wonderful He is. And at times, He's like you know the person who has this gift and you can't wait to give it that you start giving hints and clues so that you can at least see it and you're hoping they can get a little bit of experiencing it because you yourself are so excited to give it. Well, that's what you see with our God. Incredibly loving, constantly involved in his creation, pulling it forward and upward, anticipating what he wants us all to know and experience. Well, it begins by God creating the heavens and the earth. The old story of Adam and Eve, which we, we we're aware of, you know, God begins and he speaks forth with words, creation, all different things of creation. And after each and every one, every day, he looks at what he's created and he goes, wow, wow, that's that's good. I like it. He steps back as the artist and finally on the last day, when he makes his greatest creation, he, he creates that which is made in his image. And he creates that and he forms it, both male and female. And he, and, he, and he looks back at it and he, as an artist, goes, wow, that's really good. Remarkable, if I say so myself. At the end of that is every one of you. He says that. He goes, wow, that is really Good. You are incredibly made, wonderfully thought through by God as he's designed you. Well, Adam and Eve, they have this great beginning. They're living in this home that God designed that was perfect, and they mess it up. Due to pride, due to their own selfishness, the same way that we all, due to pride and due to selfishness, mess up the things in our life. The Bible calls that the idea of sin, where you either miss the mark or you actually trespass over things that you're not to do. And the Word of God says that as a result of that, they fell into sin and God had to remove them from this home which He had designed and created for them. And they begin to live this life of wanderers. But before they leave, God gives them a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God says... Through your offspring, someone, someone will come. And this someone will crush the head of this evil being that has that has led you into sin and has stands opposed you and desires your demise. He will crush its head, but it will strike his heel. And they're sent off. Well, the next point in the story that I want to bring you to is is this loving God, this incredibly great and and merciful God, who steps in and intervenes in the life of a man named Abraham. Abraham's living his life with his wife Sarah in a place, in a culture that is without God. And and God speaks to him and calls him and he says, I want to bring you to a land. I'm going to cause you to wander. I'm going to cause you to go to a place because you know in your heart there's a home, there's there's a place that you long for that you long to be. And I'm going to have you wander and bring you to this place because I'm calling you to trust me in faith, to walk with me and to follow me till I bring you to that place. And and, and, and along with that, I want to do this as well. I don't want to give you this home that your heart longs for, but I I also want to give you a child, an heir, a son. And, and, And through this son, you will become the father of many nations and I will bless you through this this son. He says, just trust. I'll provide. Well Abraham waits and 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 waits. He's hundred years old. His wife is in her late nineties. Get the picture. And God provides. She's pregnant. She gives birth to a son. His name is Isaac. This child begins to grow in about 12 years of age as Abraham is following in faith. This son, Isaac, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you. He comes in a test and he says, Give your son to me. And he asks Abraham to offer his one and only son, his son of promise, as a sacrifice. Now, when you read that in Scripture, it is one of the most difficult, challenging scriptures in all of the Bible. Scholars read it, and you, there's books written on this alone. But one of the things that's remarkable to me as you read scripture is this you don't have any sense of shock in Abraham that God would ask him to do that. As a parent, isn't that shocking? You read nowhere in Scripture where Abraham's going, Oh, vey, what are you thinking? There's none of that. Scripture, in fact, is silent. Abraham seems to go about this as if it's just natural. And folks, in his day and in his culture and all the cultures around him, it was natural. It was something people did. There was a search, and in, in, as people were walking and seeking to understand life and seeking to understand this unknowable God, they would begin to plant crops. And as they'd plant crops, they knew they had to give thanks in some way, so they would take some of the fruit of their crop, the first fruit of it, they would offer it to God. They, say, they would say, God, thank you so much. And if God blessed them more, they would give them more. How can you give when God has blessed you? How can you outgive Him so you give what you can, the best you can? And then there's this haunting suspicion and understanding in the heart that you're sinner and that you, that you have, you have through your pride and through your selfishness messed up relationships and you've also messed up your relationship with God. There's this understanding that you're separated from Him and so in some ways you understand it's just in your heart that this God is angry, this God has ought against you. And so you begin to say, well, what can I give him? What can I what can I offer him that would appease this anger? What is it that I can give to him? And so you begin to think of the things you can give. And, and eventually what you come to is you say, what? I will give my best. And so people began to do that. They began to lay on their altars the best that they had. They would bring their firstborn, their child. Hoping in some way that that would appease and would provide for what their hearts they knew couldn't give. One historian writes, offering human sacrifices was a very ancient custom and has been practiced at different times among many nations since the most ancient of times. Among the list of nations were the Ethiopians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Phoenicians, the Canaanites, the Scythians, the Egyptians, the Chinese, the Persians, the Indians, the Gauls, the Carthaginians. The Britons, the Arabians, the Romans, and many more, including the Africans and also the peoples of America. The sacrifices they offered were done in many different ways. They would actually offer them and slaughter by a knife or burn or drown or bury alive or they would throw them downstairs of the pyramid. All hoping. And here is God intervening, stepping in, bringing the future forward, pulling present those in the present Upward and forward out of their own mess and out of their own sin. And God steps in to put an end to all this nonsense. That somehow we can give Him enough to make our wrong right. That somehow we can, through our own love and through our own works and through our own goodness, provide what is necessary. And God steps in. And Abraham he learns this huge lesson. He understands in this moment that I don't have enough To give God in myself. And with his hand raised, God says, as he's about to plunge the knife into his son, who's tied on his altar, he says, don't. God says, don't. He says, over there, and he hears this rustle over in the bushes, and he looks, and there is a ram. And God tells him, take that ram. I will take that as a substitute for the time being. Because God told him, I will provide I will provide. You don't have what you need to satisfy me in that way. And so stop giving your children. And it's amazing how God pulls all of culture forward because He uses in a model Abraham and that nation and that nation pulls the rest of the nations forward out of this desire to give these things which God is saying, don't give me. <laughs> With His hand raised, God says, I'll provide. And Abraham names that place the God-will-provide-mountain. That's what he names it. God reveals him and he shows him that my love is greater than even your sin, that I will provide for you, even though you need to trust that in someday it will come. And the true test of love for God, Abraham began to realize was to put his faith in this God who is gracious and who is faithful and will someday provide for sin his shortcomings and his need. But God steps in again. This time he steps in a number of years later and he saves a baby named Moses. It's a time when there is a king of Pharaoh who's trying to kill all the young little babies under two. He's in this thing, and the Old Testament actually uses the word ark. He's in this basket, but it's like an ark which saves him. Saves him from the wrath of this king, so that at some point later, God then steps in again in his life, years later, and He calls him. Here is now Moses. He's living in the wilderness, out in the desert. God comes to him in this burning bush, and He speaks to him. He intervenes once again, and He says to him, Moses, I want you to take all your people who are living in bondage, they're living in slavery, they're not living in the home that I have really promised them, and I will have you wander and bring you to the place that your heart longs for, to the home that I have been preparing for you. And so Moses leads his community to the land that had been promised to his father, Abraham, and now to this nation as they're called to possess it. And as he leads them on the way, he stops at another mountain where he gives out some truths. We call them literally laws, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments were, were laws that God was once again stepping in and pulling present upward and forward, a whole community of people giving them laws so they would begin to understand that, that God gives them rights and, and dignity and respect and he creates this community through these laws that they will live together in a healthy and loving and respectful way. And it's the Ten Laws. If you were watching last night, um, you, I won't even need to go through this because it was on last night, Ten Commandments, if you wanted to watch it on TV. But these ten laws, think about it for a second. They're really just bare minimums for getting along. They're not real difficult to, to really do. They're, in one way, just simple things like do not steal. This is how, you want a good community. If you guys want to you know, have a good community here, let me give you some of these laws. Do not steal. Don't commit murder. Um, don't take another person's spouse. Um, treat those who are older, especially parents, respectfully and with honor. Take a day and get rest. I mean, you think about it, they're, they're really the bare minimums, the bare requirements for getting along in a community. And what's interesting about that is not only is it these laws given to this nation, but what you also need to understand that, that these laws that God infuses, steps in, intervenes, gives to this people, become the very laws that become the foundation for the moral codes of the Western civilization that are also the ones that are beginning to found now also international law. The Hebrew law and the Ten Commandments, the Judeo-Christian tradition, is considered a fundamental basis for Western legal codes and morality. These laws given to Moses helped to establish a community that enjoyed freedom without chaos. Our Declaration of Independence is founded on this by stating that there exists unalienable rights of men, rights that were given by God, And this is very significant because in most societies up till that time, and even to some today, rights are only conferred by whoever is in power at the time. So here's God stepping in, pulling a whole group of people forward. He's, in a sense, taking the future and showing how they get along in heaven and and depositing it into this created order in this world so that it can begin to be developed and move through. And then... As he's pulling it forward and and as he brings the future into the present, he steps in one more time. After a long wait, he literally steps in to Jesus. And God steps into humanity through Jesus uniquely as a first fruit of what God longs to provide for all that He's created. This time, God decides not to just come and speak to a prophet. This time, he decides to make a personal visit. He decides to dress up in the mortality of flesh. God fully enters into our human experience so that he might save us from ourselves, from our sin, from our self-centered, self-absorbed, prideful ways. He decides to come in Jesus and he... And in the life of Jesus, you see this incredible heart of the Father, this love that begins to be displayed. No longer rules that are external, that are just the bare minimums, but now the maximum is being displayed. It's love that comes not just to restrain you from the outside, like don't go more than 35 miles an hour in a speed limit, or make sure you stop at a stop sign, or treat people with kind. It's a law that begins to move out of the heart of Him. It's a love that He shows and displays. And He walks on this earth and He shows you how you can through dependence, simple dependence on the Holy Spirit of God through a humble heart that understands that God is gracious and loving. He begins to pour out His Spirit. And as you watch and understand and are moved by His Spirit, you're able to not only be in touch with God the Father through the Spirit, but you're able to actually touch other people by God so that you can see the transforming love and work and power of God moving through you to touch other people. And as that's happening, it's transforming you. And then there's this really cool thing, because it's not just about his life, but his great work was in his death. And so he comes to the cross, and he expresses his fullness of his love. And his fullness of his love is that he sacrifices himself fully for you. So that when he shows up, one of the prophets look at him, John the Baptist, and says, "Look, here is the Lamb of God." Because when Moses brought this people through, not only did he give them laws, but he gave them a sacrificial system so that they would repeatedly, year after year, um, give these sacrifices and place them on an altar. Because just like Abraham knew and the people of those cultures knew that there was something not right that they needed to provide for God for their sin. God says to these people in this nation of Israel, I will show you that year after year, I will take away your guilt and the shame that comes from the result of that brokenness. And out of that brokenness, the stain on your conscience, I will come and I will provide. I will remove it. And here is Jesus on the very same mount. The mount that is called God Will Provide. He's put up on a cross. The very same mount. in the sense that year after year, sacrifices were given. Here is Jesus placed as the one who provides. Now here's what I want to share with you about the resurrection. The resurrection is the most incredibly wonderful thing. Because without it, we would not know that that sacrifice has been accepted. One of the great things is that when Jesus died and he went into the tomb, and instead of going, you know, right past the the earth to go, you know, that kind of thing, going right to heaven, he stops for forty days, in order that we can see him, that we can get a picture of his resurrection body. That we can see what's destined for us. God again says, let me pull you into the, the, the future, into the present. Let me pull you upward and forward. let you So that we can all see what God wants us to live like and to be. That someday we will have resurrection bodies. Guess what? You have new bodies. All the aches and pains gone. You look at Jesus and you see Him walk around. God in His great love says, Jesus, I want you to walk around for 40 days. You meet with one and you meet with a couple here and then eventually meet with 500. I want them all to see what the future is going to look like. And he does. And we celebrate it. Because he wants us to know. Wanderers on this earth, wondering all the time, can I give you enough, God? Is there enough? Can I do it? He says, just look at the empty tune. It's like a receipt. It's like a receipt. When you go into a store and you pay for something and you walk out and you hear the buzzer ring, if you're holding the receipt, you don't even worry, do you? You kind of go, well, right here, pay for. That's what the resurrection is all about. That's what the empty tomb is all about. God wants us to look at that and say, look at I accept that it's paid for. So every time that your sin and your conscience plagues you and every time this voice, this this accusing voice of Satan comes against you and says, you sinner, you rotten person, you can't do enough, you say, wait a second, it's not about me. It's been done. It's been paid for. It's fully done. And you show him the receipt of the empty tomb. You show them the resurrection of Christ and say, that body is the body I'm going to have someday. Amen? And then the coolest thing about it is the resurrection pulls forward, just like you open these windows and you see out there. It it allows you to have a window into the future. God loves us so much. He says, I want you to know, folks, this world is not the end. This life is not what you're to be living for alone. Now, as I get older, that means more and more to me. As I see people who I love pass away, Or come down with fatal illnesses. Or I see people who have um, begun to, through physical illness, see their bodies begin to not work the way they should. And I just go, oh, isn't it great that God has provided a home? And he started with, with Abraham and said, I'm going to bring you to a place, a home your heart longs for. And he shows Moses and he, they possess this land. He says, it's just a physical thing. It's just kind of a representation of what you will someday possess. And then Jesus comes and he gives us the picture. This is what it's all about. This is what I desire for you. Jesus came to give us a picture in our human souls of heaven. He wants you and I to know that if we will trust Him with our life, if we will live knowing that He will provide, if we will rest in the promise of His love, He will do as He says and love us fully in everything, through everything, till we have everything He wants for us. And This morning, this Resurrection Sunday, before we close, I want to give you a picture of I want to give you a picture of heaven so that you can have this in your soul. You ever, you ever do like um, jigsaw puzzles, you know And if you try and do it without the picture, how hard that is? Well, if you try and live life with all these little puzzle pieces and you don't have them to put together and you don't have the picture of what you're looking for, what life is really about, it really can be difficult. You can find yourself lost. You can find yourself confused. You can find yourself frustrated wanting to give up. But when you can see the picture and you get it in your heart and your soul, you begin to go, well, that's what it's for. That's what I'm living for. If you lose your wealth, if you lose... Um, A relationship if you are hurt terribly you know that in some day some way because God is a God who said he provides on the mount he will provide this God does provide this God will provide he gives us the picture of heaven through the resurrection I once heard a man his name is Mario Bergner he shared how he, he prepared his mother for heaven she was real close to death she was a bit nervous about passing away knew the time was soon and so he writes that he, he told the story. He said, I looked up all the biblical references and pieced together a prayer and I told my mother what I could tell from the scriptures, what will happen when you die. He says, Mom, what I want to do is I want to help alleviate some of the nervousness and anxiety you have, so I'm going to have us practice dying together. And he says, now when we do this, I just don't want you to die on me, okay? But let's practice it. And so, he says, just like Jesus, Mom, you have the choice to hang on for another breath, to really try and eke out another breath, or you can just at a certain point choose to give your spirit to the Father. There's no sting in death for you as a Christian, so you can just give your spirit right to the Father. And so he says, this is what I used to pray for her. And we would pretend that and she was at last at this point where I told her to hold her hands and fists real tight and as if you're breathing your last breath. And now, instead of trying to breathe that last one, just let your, your hands and your, your fists go and, and just say, Jesus, receive my spirit. And just breathe it out to Him. Well, this morning, I want to do the same with you before we close. Okay? You don't have to do this. There's no coercion here. But if you want to, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to clench your fist and I want to lead you through the prayer that he led his mother through. I think it's so important that we get a picture of the puzzle in the sense of what it's going to be like. It's helpful. So with your fist clenched, you're not, as we do this, please don't die on me. This would not be a good Easter if you did. Well, maybe it would because you'd be in the presence of God, right? But I want you to clench your fist with your eyes closed. Let me, let me read this to you. He would say, Ma, It will be the last time that you can take another breath. Now, with your hands clenched, maybe you have energy for one more breath. Now, with your hands clenched, folks, don't do it. What I encourage you to do now is just to release your hands. Just go ahead and just go with Jesus and and just say, Father, Jesus, receive my spirit. Just decide to give the Lord your spirit. Open your hands, let it go. Now, you will be traveling very quickly until you see the city of heaven. You're in on this ride right now. Very quick in the distance, you see the city of heaven. It's surrounded by four walls with three gates in each wall, each one carved out of a large pearl. With the eyes of your mind right now, just look at it. The walls are made of jasper, which is a see-through stone. And from within the city of heaven, there's a great light. And you can see the green ring around heaven, which is the wall of heaven. And as you approach the city of God, you'll come to one of the gates where you're supposed to enter and there is the book of life. Your, your name is written there. Look at it. The page will turn and there's your name written in the blood of Jesus. That's the ink they use in the book of life. And someone will call your name and the gate to heaven will open and you will find yourself within the, within the, the walls of the city of God. And just as you hear the gate close, if you will look down, you'll see that you're standing on a road where the gold is so pure and refined that it looks like glass. And actually, you can see right through it. And if you look up into the sky of heaven, you'll you'll notice that there is no sun in the sky because the presence of God is the light of heaven. Now, keep walking on that golden road and you'll see that it leads to the river of life and the water there is crystal clear. On each side are the trees of life and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now, go ahead and pick one of those leaves. Take the leaf and press it to your heart. Let all the pain that is in your heart, all that your heart has suffered, the pain you've experienced in this life, whether it's divorce or betrayal or abuse, some great failure, maybe the loss of a child or a brother or sister, all the... All that your heart has suffered. Let all the pain go into the leaf. And now take that leaf and throw it into the river. And follow the river upstream. And when you get to the source of the river, you'll notice that it's coming from the throne, which is the throne of the King of Heaven. And there are layers of jewels, sapphires and rubies and diamonds. And it's sitting on layers of fine jewels. And there are seven lamps around it and an emerald rainbow around about it. And and Jesus is sitting there. And when He sees you, He'll come down off the throne and He'll embrace you. Now, there may be one tear left in your eye, and if you want to, go right ahead and and cry that last tear out. He'll wipe it away from your eye. Because there will be no more need to cry again. Joy will flood your soul as He leads you to sit down with Him and all those whom you love who have been waiting for you. What a happy reunion that will be. In heaven, remember this, though. One day there is like a thousand days down here. So if you just wait about 15 minutes, all of us here will join you there. Isn't that great? All this because of our God who loves us, who is mighty to save, who can't wait to bring the future into your present and give you a glimpse of what will be even now. In this life. Amen.